If you would this morning, turn with me to the 26th chapter, 26th chapter of the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 26. Begin reading in verse 1. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 1. <clears throat> you shall make you no idols, nor graven image, neither rear you up a standing image, neither shall you set up any image of stone in your land to bow down unto it, for I am the Lord your God. Ye shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season, and the land shall yield her increase, and the trees of the fields shall yield their fruit. And your threshing shall reach unto the vintage, and the vintage shall reach unto the sowing time, and ye shall eat your bread to the full, and dwell in your land safely. And I will give peace in the land, and ye shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will rid evil beasts out of the land, neither shall the sword go through your land. And ye shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. And five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. For I will have respect unto you and make you fruitful and multiply you and establish my covenant with you. And ye shall eat old store and bring forth the old because of the new. And I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and ye shall be my people. I am the Lord your God which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt that ye should not be their bondmen. And I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you go upright. I'd like to notice again verse 80 says, Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. Later in verse 36, after the Lord gives them the other picture, if they will not be obedient, he tells them in verse 36 particularly, he says, And upon them that are left alive of you, I will send a faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies, and the sound of a shaken leaf shall chase them, and they shall flee as fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall when none pursueth. Here the Lord gives the children of Israel two very different views of what their mind and emotions will be. If they're obedient, he says, as we read in verse 8, five should chase a hundred. That's one man to 20. He says, but a hundred shall put 10,000 to flight. He says, however, if you will not hearken to me, he says, I will give you a faintness of heart that even at the sound of a leaf, they would flee. And they would flee when there was none to pursue. For those reading through you'll find that in the book of Exodus, of course, the children of Israel come out of the land of Egypt. They ultimately end up at Mount Sinai, where at Sinai, God gives Moses the law. Most of the rest of the book of Exodus then gives commandment concerning how the tabernacle was to be built. And also then the clothing of the priest and the furnishings of the tabernacle. 
Then as we come into the book of Leviticus, primarily we find uh, instruction given regarding the various offerings. There were daily offerings, weekly offerings, annual offerings. There were also offerings when an individual had sinned knowingly. And um, so God gave all these instructions. And so now he is summing up at verse chapter 26 and verse chapter 27. He's letting them know that the law is coming to an end. All the instruction of how the children of Israel are to govern their lives. He's, he's taught them all those things. Now as you go into the book of Numbers and also Deuteronomy. And then as you go forward into the book of Joshua. And then into the book of Judges. You're going to find the history of the children of Israel as they journey in the wilderness on their way to Canaan, of course, their unfaithfulness to believe that God will bless them to inhabit the land. So 40 years they will spend in the wilderness. And then finally, under the leadership of Joshua, they will come in, inhabit the land. And then for a period of time after Joshua, they would be led by various judges. And you'll find that very quickly, the thing that God commands them not to do, they began to do until ultimately... In the book of 1 Samuel, they request of Samuel a king, and Saul will be anointed the first king of Israel, then David, and then kings will reign. After the death of Solomon, the nation will divide, and then the divided nation will carry on for a period of time, Israel being the ten northern tribes, Judah the two and a half southern tribes, and it will continue on that way until the nation to the north of Israel will consume Israel. Judah will carry on for about, I think if I remember right, about 200 years beyond Israel. And then finally, because of their ungodliness, we find that the Babylonians will come in and conquer the children of Israel that still exist in the land of Judah and will be carried away. Ultimately, after 70 years, they'll be brought back home, but it'll never quite be the same. After they go to Babylon, things are never quite what they were prior to their being carried away. Even coming to the days of the Lord Jesus Christ and Herod having rebuilt the temple, adding to it and, and make it a glorious building, it's still the nation never had the, the power, the prestige, the influence, and the economy that it had, especially in the days of Solomon ever again. And so, as we read here in the 26th chapter of Leviticus, we notice in verses 1 through 12, excuse me, yeah, 1 through 12, a number of things that God tells them that he will bless them with if they will be obedient. We find that in verse 4, he says, if they would be obedient to him, they would have rain in due season. Now, for those of us who are not farmers and do not live an agrarian lifestyle, we may not consider how important rain in due season is. I think we all understand that rain is important, but rain is important not just at any time, but it's, we need it in uh, the first rain, as the Bible calls it, and the latter rain. In other words, a rain at the time of uh, planting or sowing, and also at the time of harvest or near to harvest. In other words, to make the plants uh, produce and come forth from the ground, and also to sustain them. Of course, you can have rain out of due season that can destroy a crop. A strong rain when plants are tender can uh, flood them out. A strong rain at the wrong time, right at time of harvest, can delay a harvest to the point that even crops could be spoiled and ruined. And so here the Lord says, I will give you rain in due season, meaning you'll have the right amount of rain at the right time. 
And listen, that's still very much important in our lives today. We may not recognize it, especially if we're not farmers. We just think, uh, go up to Publix and food will always be there. But listen, if God doesn't send rain in due season, it won't be long before a public supermarket doesn't have the things you need. Now, Brother Jamie can tell you better than I can what their inventory is like, but I know food spoils, even with all the preservatives we have. I don't know how many days' worth of food that Publix has in stock, uh, even in the warehouses, that if all of a sudden uh, the ingredients to make bread and so forth all of a sudden were seized, how long they could continue to sustain our nation. I guarantee you that we today still need rain in the right season. He says, I will give your land increase. It will yield increase. He says, your trees shall yield fruit. He says also in verse 5 that the harvest would reach to planting and planting to harvest. That just means that they would have food year round. That even in the time when uh, planting has occurred and they're waiting for the harvest to come, they would still be eating uh, from the harvest of the year before. He says also in verse 6 that you'll have peace in the land. He said, I'll rid the land of evil beasts. He says, I'll give you a time without war. He says, I'll also bless you to prevail over any enemies with just a few. Remember, he says, five would chase a hundred and a hundred of you should put 10,000 to flight. He says in verse 9 that the people themselves would be fruitful. This nation would multiply and grow. He also lets them know in verse 10 that the old store would be enough to last until the time to replenish the barns would come. And then verse 11, he says, my tabernacle will set among you, meaning God's house will be in the midst of you. Listen, that's a vital thing. Think about it. There's many places, as Brother Parker prayed this morning, that do not have the house of God to go to and worship his name. Uh, It could be that just in a short while, uh, there would be no church in central Florida if God did not bless uh, the house of God to continue. And here he lets the children of Israel know that if you'll be faithful uh, to the commandments that I have commanded you, I will set my tabernacle among you. That's true for you and I as well. If we'll be faithful and obedient to the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe and trust uh, that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the local body here at Little union i will carry on but if we will not be obedient if we will not hearken to him how can we expect him uh, to continue to bless us to continue on and press onward he's uh, now jesus said i will build my church jesus is not a church destroyer the lord jesus christ is in the business of building churches but he's also in the business of uh, overseeing churches that are obedient to him he made it clear to the churches of Reve- uh, churches of asia and revelation That if they were not obedient to the commandments uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, what would he do? He would remove his candlestick, meaning the life, the source of life from the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then lastly, he says, I will walk among you and I'll be your God, verse 12. Those are about 12 promises or so that God gives that he would give to the children of Israel if they would be obedient to what he commands. Then, in verse 14, he says, but if you will not hearken. That was the positive. Took 13 verses. The negative is going to comprise verses 14 to verse 44. He's going to take up the, most of the rest of the chapter to describe the various plagues that would come and the judgments that would come upon the children of Israel if they would not be obedient to the commandments of the Lord. 
This ties very closely to what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in about verse 17, maybe 18. He says, come, let us reason together. He says, though your sins be as scarlet, he says, they shall be as white as snow. He says, if ye will hearken and be obedient, ye shall eat of the good of the land. He says, but if you refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword. Listen, God is, God is not altered. God has not changed. Now we understand that the Old Testament ceremonial Mosaic law of worship was finished in the Lord Jesus Christ. The moral law of God has never altered. That has not changed. Uh, God's commandment of not killing, uh, of not committing adultery, of not stealing, of not lying, of not bearing false witness against a brother, against uh, raising up idols in our lives, putting things ahead of God and the house of God. Those uh, attributes of God's morality have never altered from before the giving of the law to Moses till after the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those things have consistently been required by God of his people throughout time and that has not changed and sometimes we think about the Old Testament and how that really doesn't apply to us but it does indeed uh, the moral law of God has not altered one bit God has never changed uh, in his moral character uh, what he views as right and what he views as wrong and what he viewed wrong in Moses' day he views as wrong today what he viewed as right in the day of Moses, he views as right today in 2024. I don't care what the scoffics and the critics and the high of this world might say. Uh, I do not believe in moral relativism, meaning that right is whatever you want it to be in any given time in society. That is how the majority of our culture uh, thinks about truth and what is morally acceptable. That is not how God views things. He says, I am the Lord. I change not. Now, that's a good thing. Because he goes on to say, because I change not, therefore your sons of Jacob are not consumed. Hebrews 13 verse 8 says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, the same Jesus that lived in the uh, time of the apostles uh, that called sin, sin, is still the same Jesus Christ who's sitting on the right hand of God and judges iniquity even today as he spoke out against it while he walked here in Galilee and in the land of Judea. So anyway, as you look through the rest of this chapter, you're going to find what will happen if uh, the children of Israel will not hearken. He says, if you will not hearken unto me and will not do all these commandments, and if ye shall despise my statutes, or if your soul abhor my judgment, so that you will not do all my commandments, but that you break my covenant. Notice what he says, I also will do this unto you. Well, what will God do? I counted up, and I probably hadn't counted them all. I just tried to categorize them as best I could. About 13 things that God speaks that he will do against the children of Israel if they will not hearken to all that he commanded them to do. Verse 16, he says, there'll be bodily sickness. Then it says in verse 17 that God's face would be against them and their enemies would slay and reign over them. He says in verse 19 that the rain would cease and the land would harden. They couldn't even toil the soil. Uh, they couldn't break up the soil. He says in verse 20, he says, your labor for harvest will be totally wasted. It'll just be vanity. 
In verse 22 he says the wild beasts would prevail against their young and their cattle and they would diminish among the people. In other words, if you don't have young people before long, there's not going to be any people. I think we all comprehend that, do we not? I mean, that's true in a church as well. If a church does not have young people, what in the world is going to happen? Now, I don't like hearing this saying, you need to really take care of the young folks they're the future of the church. No, the Lord Jesus Christ is the future of His church. I believe that the young people are part of the church presently, not what the church is built on in the future. But I understand the sentiment. I understand the desire that God would bless us with young. Well, here He says, if you will not be obedient to me, here's what's going to happen. He says, wild beasts will take your sons they'll take your daughters he said they'll take your cattle and you'll diminish in the land he says in verse 25 that God's sword would be against them and bring pestilence and their enemies would prevail in verse 26 he says food will be rationed notice how he describes it he says when I have broken the staff of your bread he's talking about wheat when wheat is gone he says, ten women shall bake your bread in one oven. You know, when you have a Thanksgiving meal, can you have enough ovens? <laughs> I mean, I've seen some people that have one on their stove and two in the wall. And at Thanksgiving time, three still not enough. Imagine being at a time when there's ten women, but only one oven. Now, they still had, he said, there's not enough food to occupy ten ovens. That's how bad it's going to get. That's how bad food will be rationed. Again, he says, when I have broken the staff of your bread, ten women shall bake your bread in one oven, and they shall deliver you your bread again by weight, and ye shall eat and not be satisfied. In other words, we're going to have to ration it out. Thank God I didn't live during World War II. I've heard about it when there were stamps to buy gas, stamps to buy sugar, stamps to buy this and that. So many things were rationed out because it was needed for the war effort. I've never lived in a day when anything had to be rationed. <laughs> The worst thing I've ever seen was the COVID uh, uh, breakdown of toilet paper being out of supply. I, I still don't understand what happened during all of that, that all of a sudden that that was a big issue. Uh, Brother Wayne put all the tunes in. And Brother Wayne got so concerned about that, he went to Walmart every day and stood in line and bought every pa He had a whole closet just full just in case uh, everyone. I was more concerned about other things than uh, toilet paper. But anyway, uh, he says... This is we're, the basic things of life will be gone again. We're not used to that. We're used to going to the store and everything we want is there. Or worst case, wait till the delivery truck comes a couple days later and it'll be there. Um, anyway, he goes on to say in verse 29, he says, The day will come you'll eat the flesh of your own children. That happened. And the nation of Israel, it got that bad that that actually occurred. He says in verses 30 to 32, God would destroy their idols, make the cities waste. They would bring, he'd bring desolation to the land. He says the desolation would be so bad that when the enemies came in, they would be astonished at the desolation. What God is here saying, he's saying, the blessings are going to be so abundant in the first verses that we looked at. He said they're going to be so abundant that your enemies will not be able but to help believe that God must be blessing this nation. Here is a land that when I look at pictures of Palestine, it does not look like the most fruitful land in the world. 
looking at a satellite view of it. It doesn't appear, uh, you know, just lush and green. Maybe it is. Maybe I'm looking at pictures wrong. I've never been over there. Don't have any intent to go. Uh, don't need to go. But anyway, he, he lets them know how bad it can get here in the days that it's good, in the days where there's prosperity. They would have all that they could want. And the enemies would even recognize God must be blessing this people. But on the flip side, God is telling them, if you will not obey me, I'm going to bring such desolation that your enemies are going to be so astonished that the enemies will also know that it is God who has done this. And that the only reason that this people even survive at all is that there still must be some small mercy that God is having toward them. Now, which way would you rather live? Would you rather live in such a way that our enemies would have to stop and confess and say, there's no doubt these people are being blessed? Or would you rather live in such a way that our enemies would be astonished that our God was so angry at us that He's brought such desolation into our lives that they, they said their God has turned against them? He says, that's what it's going to be like. He says, your enemies... He says, they're going to be astonished. What are they going to be astonished at? How greatly God is angered at this people. He says in verse 33, I'll scatter you. Then he says in verses 36 to 38, he says, those who are left, he says, you'll be afraid just at the sound of a leaf. And he says in verse 39, those who survive would pine away, just start melting away. But after all of that, he says in verse 40, if they shall confess their iniquity. Here's the mercy of God. He says, here's what will happen. I'll remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham. I will remember the land. Verse 44, he says, and yet for all that, when they be in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away. Neither will I abhor them to destroy them utterly and to break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sakes remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the heathen, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. He says, these are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord made between him and the children of Israel in Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. So he lets them know that if they get into this terrible time of affliction and judgment, that if they will just simply turn back to God and confess their iniquity to him, he says, I remember the promise that I made to Jacob, to Isaac, and to Abraham. And he says, and I remember the land. Then he goes on and says, even in their uh, bondage, uh, as it was in the days that they were in the land of the Babylonians, God still remembered them. That even while they were in hardship in, for 70 years, God still showed them mercy. That's the story of our lives. That God is faithful to the promise that he has made to himself. That yes, when you and I will be obedient to what God has commanded us to do, we shall uh, see exceeding great things. And yet when we uh, refuse and we uh, harden our hearts and our necks against Him, then obviously destruction and calamity and judgment shall come upon our life. But will God 
utterly forsake us and turn from us so that he will remember us no more. No, God will never get to that point. Uh, God has made promise that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. The 8th chapter of the book of Romans is so vital uh, to the mental, uh, the spiritual mind. Let me put it, the, the health of the spiritual mind of the child of God. When Paul says, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, that means how we die or how we live. He says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life. He goes on and gives us all the things that could happen while we're here in this world. He says, I am persuaded that none of these things shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, Paul didn't say in the midst of all that. That everything is going to go perfect, everything will go smooth, everything will always be great, that we'll always be obedient, that we'll always enjoy the good that he's promised here in the first verses of this chapter. But what he does say is no matter what occurs, the love of God will never come to an end. And thank God that is the truth. I want to take just a few minutes and look back at verse 8 again. Again he says, five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. Can you think of examples of that throughout the word of God? Where that very thing came to pass? I can think of a number. I think in the book of Judges, the seventh chapter. The Midianites have arisen against the children of Israel. The Amalekites with them. The Bible says they were like grasshoppers. If you don't understand that, go to West Texas when the grasshoppers have been set loose by some power. Uh, they eat everything. Um, he, they said that the, 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 the Midianites, some have counted them up. There's about 135,000 Midianites. If you'll recall when Joshua is getting, excuse me, Je Gideon is getting ready to go out and battle. He has an army of 33,000, not quite a tenth of what the Midianites have. 33,000 is what he starts with. God tells him, your army's too big. I say, God, no, it's not. They're, they're so much larger than we are. We're just a tenth of what they are. Well, I need every man that's here. He says, no, you don't. You tell every one of them that's afraid to turn around and go home. All of a sudden, his army's whittled down to 10,000. Well, you know what? There was even carnal, when I say earthly wisdom in that. Do you want to go to battle with 20,000 people or 23,000 that are afraid? I always, when I think about that, the movie The Patriot with Mel Gibson, you remember in that last scene, well, not the last scene, but the last battle scene, when uh, the... The uh, militia, they go out in the front of the battle. There's a small part of the regular Continental Army. And they go out there to trick uh, the, the British Army to try to draw them in. And they're going to battle. And then all of a sudden they turn and flee. And they go over some ruins over a hill. And as you go over the hill, all of a sudden you see this mass of the Continental Army that's there to uh, trick uh, uh, the, uh, the English Army. And here the British Army comes. And of course they... Go hand to hand. Well, for a little while, the Americans are prevailing. But then what occurs? The British began to take the up. The cavalry comes in that they were so afraid of. And all of a sudden, the Americans, they began to turn and flee. And you remember in that scene, 
uh, Mel Gibson, he takes the American flag of that day with the 13 stars and uh, throws away a weapon and begins to charge. And what does that do? It instills uh, courage and also uh, a desire to continue in the battle. And the entire army turns around and they go on to fight against the enemy. Well, I don't want to fight with fearful people. When I go up against Satan and all the fiends of hell, I want to know that I'm joined together with people that God has given courage knowing that five can put a hundred to flight and a hundred, a thousand to flight or ten thousand to flight. That's the kind of people that I want to be joined together in discipleship with. And I hope that that's who you are and what you are and that our confidence in Christ is so high that we know that all the devils of hell cannot successfully come against us because we have the power of the Lord Jesus Christ on our side and within us. That day, though, if we're not careful, it could come that we would not be like these folks that were willing to go out and fight. But here, again, God tells Gideon, you've got too many. Tell everybody that's afraid, go home. They got told to go. I'd probably been in the group that went home. They go home. Now there's 10,000. God says, you still have an army that's too big. Wait a minute. I've just lost two-thirds of my army. We were only a tenth to start with. And you want me to give up two-thirds? He says, you tell them to go down and drink water. And he whittles the army down to 300. And then God gives him the battle plan. That they were to have a trumpet in one hand. An earthen vessel in the other. And in that earthen vessel there was to be a, a candle burning, a light burning. And these 300 men would encamp round about the Midianites at night. And when Gideon gave the order, they to break that earthen vessel. The light was to shine forth. The trumpets were to blast. And what were they to say? The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. <laughs> What happened when that occurred? Here they are, 300 men surrounding the 135,000 of the Midianites. The appearance is that if you, only have, if you have 300 trumpeters, how many uh, warriors are behind them? It confuses the Midianites so much uh, that they began to flee away. And the children of Israel began to slay them in great numbers. Notice though how they did it. They did it with a trumpet. And they did it by breaking an earthen vessel and letting the light shine. You know what that tells me? That you and I are to sound forth the gospel message of the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to break our own earthen clay, break the desires of our flesh, and light, let the light of the glory of God that's within us shine forth. And I promise you the darkness of this world, it will turn and flee. Because the darkness hates the light. Because it reproves their deeds for their deeds are evil. God told him, he says, five will chase 20, 100, 10,000. That night, 300 were able to spell an army of 135,000 men. 1 Samuel chapter 14, you'll find that the children of Israel have been dealing with the Philistines as they often did. There's two swords abiding in the land of Israel. One belongs to Saul, one belongs to Jonathan. Saul is unwilling to go forth to battle. Why did the people want a king? To lead them into battle. Well, their king won't do it. Well, Jonathan, he gets, uh, I don't know, he just looks at the situation. If you recall in 1 Samuel 14, he tells his armor bearer, he says, we're going to go over to the garrison of the Philistines. So he goes by night and he secretly goes up 
And they have a plan about how they will enter into the garrison. And they'll know by the way they speak whether or not God is with them or whether God is not. And the way that the Philistines responded it was clear to Jonathan that God was with them. And they go into the garrison of the Philistines and they began to slaughter them. And the Philistines are so confused they began to slaughter themselves. Wouldn't it be glorious that if the church of the Lord Jesus Christ would live exactly as the Bible commands us that we just stand back and watch as our enemies began to devour themselves? That's what happened there in 1 Samuel chapter 14. Go forward to 1 Samuel 17 when one man by the name of David was willing to go up against a giant. Thousands of Israelites, none of them willing to step up to the battle. Saul, who stood head and shoulders above all the rest, and here is David, just a boy, just a young teenager, and yet he's willing to go out to battle when the king is there for 40 days afraid to go out and face Goliath. The very man that was selected by the people of Israel, voted in by majority uh, because he was the tallest of them all. He looked like the proper and fit king uh, that would lead them to victory, and yet he was too afraid to go out and face Goliath himself. See, David was a man that knew the law of God, that was living the law of God, and thus had the confidence of God within his heart. And so he said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? In other words, I'm not impressed by him. He's defying the armies of the God of Israel. You know what he's saying? He's saying he's defying God. And you folks think that God is going to let that stand? Here you all are for 40 days trembling and in fear at the sight of Goliath when he's defying the God of Israel? Is there not a cause? Is God not worth standing up for? Don't you think that if you go out in battle with the help of God that you'll conquer this man? And so, of course, David takes up five smooth stones and with one of them drops that man and then takes his own sword and cuts the man's head off. You know, and later the Lord says that if they would not, be obedient. He says, your hearts, they'll faint. He said, in fact, I will send a faintness into their hearts in the land of their enemies. God says, I'm the one that's going to cause this. In the book of Proverbs, the 28th chapter, the first verse, Solomon says this, he says, the wicked flee. When no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. God says the shaking of a leaf will cause them to run. Here Solomon says the wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Paul told Timothy, God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. I'm not going to stand here and tell you that in the year 2020, there were not times I was concerned, wasn't concerned. I had concerns. You can, be, you can abandon all caution and abandon all good sense, and that's not right. 
the Lord Jesus Christ told his disciples when he sent them out in the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, he says, Behold, I send you forth as sheep among wolves, be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So that tells me I'm to use some wisdom and at times some caution. I still look back though at that time and it still perplexes me to this present hour at a lot of the fear that I saw and that I heard. Fear I heard about the actual virus. I think, well, what's the worst that's going to happen? The worst that's going to happen, if you get it, you're going to die. I've got news, folks. If Jesus doesn't come back, you're going to die anyway. From that or something else, that's just the reality. It's going to, okay, some were afraid of this. Well, the vaccine, it might kill us. Well, you know what? It might. I don't know. Um, but I still couldn't comprehend the fear. And then it was the fear of government. And I'm thinking to myself, we have watched throughout history, Old Testament and New, where God's people were under oppression, and yet they abounded. What happened during the time that the children of Israel were in the land of Egypt under bondage? They multiplied. What is it that the... the uh, Egyptian midwives told uh, uh, Pharaoh, he says, they're lively. <laughs> In other words, these are fruitful people. The more we try to destroy them, they just multiply all the more. When they went to Babylon, what did God tell them to do? He says, build houses, plant vineyards, have uh, uh, marry wives, and have children. He says, you're going to be there for a while, so you're going to have to continue on. So build homes, get comfortable, and pray for the peace of the city, by the way, too, the city of Babylon. He says, you're going to live in Babylon, so pray for the peace of it. Why? Hopefully no war breaks out in Babylon, and you're not a casualty of war. So he says, you pray for the peace of Babylon, you build houses there because you're going to live there. He says, you plant because you're going to need to eat while you're there. He says, go ahead and get married while you're there and have children while you're there. I'm amazed at times that people say, well, I don't want to have children. This world is just too dark, too wicked, too corrupt. I don't want to bring up children and such. That is not godly thinking. That's not how God has instructed us. What happened in the book of Acts when the church came under persecution? They didn't shrink. The church expanded. Uh, more people believed during those times. Some are so worried about the darkness of our culture. And I understand. I don't like it. Believe me. I wish this nation was the same that it was uh, when I was a child of 8 to 10 years old. Back when Reagan was president, going into the first Bush, I wish we still lived in those days. Um, listen, as I look back to those times uh, that maybe some of you during that time didn't think it was so good in comparison to today. But you know, the Bible says, say not ye, wherein is the cause that the former days are better than these. So the Bible says we're not supposed to look back and say that. We're not supposed to have that. This is the day that we're in. Psalm says this is the day which the Lord has made. Now I know that ultimately that is talking about the day of the crucifixion of Jesus. I know that. But it's still a truth. that The day we're in today is the day which the Lord hath made. Are we going to live fearfully or in confidence? If we're living fearfully, why? What's the cause? 
I think in the moments that we're living in fear, when we're gripped with fear, I think it's vital, it's important that we examine ourselves. Paul told the church at Corinth in his second epistle, he says, examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Jesus made it clear that if we would judge ourselves, others would not. Why? Because we will correct what needs correcting and there'll be no reason for someone else to point out our error. So it's important for you and I every single day to examine ourselves. And if you find yourself gripped with fear, uh, whether it's now about the upcoming election, say, Brother Chris, are you worried about the election? I'm not worried about it a bit. <laughs> not one bit. Uh, you say, well, but if the fellow that's in there now wins, things will keep going downhill. If the other fellow wins, listen, I don't care. I've watched it long enough that things don't get better. Uh, uh, I tell you, we can elect uh, the most godly of men uh, or women to uh, sit in that seat in the White House, but there's a full government behind them that are still wicked individuals. Uh, that's just the way that it is. And listen, our salvation is not going to come from Washington, D.C., our deliverance, if there's going to be any for this nation, it's going to come from glory in heaven itself. And it's going to happen because we confess our sins and we turn to the Lord. We seek his face. We humble ourselves and we pray. That's what he told us in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. If my people, which are called by my name, would humble ourselves, would seek his face, Turn from our wicked ways. Pray says, then will I hear from heaven. Forgive their sin and heal their land. I don't know what the future for our nation is. We call it a post-Christian nation. Is it going to be recovered? I don't know. Here's what I do know. Is that as I look at the history of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the darkest times of humanity, the church has shined the brightest for so long in our nation. You couldn't hardly tell the difference from the church and the nation itself. And for a long time, that was a good thing. When our nation was a moral nation, an upright nation, a godly nation, but you couldn't hardly tell a difference between the world and the church. I'm telling you, as this world grows darker, if you and I will be like those soldiers under the command of Gideon, and we'll break the earthen vessel of the fleshly desires of our life and our fears and let the light of the glory of God shine forth in the way that we conduct ourselves and live, no matter where we're at, whether it's here in the church house, in our own homes, in the schoolhouse, in our place of employment, in our neighborhoods, uh, we might just be shocked and surprised at exactly what might transpire. But we definitely should not live in fear. Again, those folks were given a faintness of heart. God sent that fear. Why? Because they were not living obediently to the commandments of God. If I have a spirit of fear, I need to look and see, have I abandoned the commandments of God? Am I living to what he's called me to do? Or am I falling short? If I'm falling short, he told me what to do. I'm to confess it. I'm to turn back to him. And what did he tell Moses to tell the children of Israel? He says, I'll remember the promise that I made to Jacob, the promise that I made to Isaac, and the promise that I made to Abraham. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, he said, take heed unto yourself. And he says, unto the doctrine, continue in them, what, in the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, for in doing this, thou shalt save thyself and them that hear thee. 
So my responsibility as a minister of the gospel is to take heed to how I live, take heed to myself, pay attention to myself, but also to pay attention to the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ and continue in them. One of the ways I continue in them is living them, but also uh, preaching them. Remember the uh, army of Gideon, they didn't just have an earthen vessel with a light in it, but they also had a trumpet in the other hand. And you and I have the gospel trumpet, and it's, uh, that's what he's telling us here. He says we're to take heed to ourselves how we live and to the doctrine. He says continue in them. He says for in, he said doing this, keeping with this, he says you'll save yourself, but also those that hear you. The gospel has saving power. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verse 17, he says I am not ashamed of the gospel. He says, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believe it to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Notice he didn't say it's salvation to the unbeliever. He's not there saying if the unbeliever will believe the gospel, they'll go to heaven. That's not what he said at all. He says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to him that believeth. It's only salvation. Uh, it'll only deliver those who already believe it. But for those who believe it, the most powerful thing you have to deliver you from bondage, from fear, from frustration is the gospel, the good news of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And knowing that we have triumph and victory in him, you and I should never live in a spirit of fear, but have full confidence in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, if we find ourselves gripped with fear, then we must check to see. Have we abandoned the commandments of God? And so has that faintness of heart been sent to us by the Lord for the way that we have lived? Or have we allowed Satan to take up residence in our heart? It's one of those two. And as I look back at my own life, and as I've lived in times of fear, I've found, no, I've just simply not believed the promises of God. I'm not living like he has said. So I can easily correct that. Asking for his help, asking for his strength, and then asking for his mercy, which the Bible makes very clear. He says in Nahum chapter 1 that the Lord, he is slow to anger. I love that about the Lord. That's not always true for me. The Lord is slow to anger. But he says, but he will by no means clear the guilty. So that doesn't mean that God will just carry on forever. But thank God he is slow to anger. But when you find yourself out of the way and find yourself with a faintness of heart, look and see, have I given Satan a seat in my life or have I turned away from the principles of the word of God? And if I have, Either of those two things, I need to drive him out. Resist the devil, he will flee. Or if you've turned from the godly principles contained in the word of God, then ask God to give you help for repentance. Godly sorrow, Paul said, leadeth to repentance, not to be repented of. So just ask the Lord for strength to turn from the things that have brought you to a place where you've not been obedient. And beg the Lord to help you to turn back to those things that are right and good. Those things that please him. So that God will be pleased to dwell with us. Set his tabernacle among us. And walk among us. And openly proclaim that he is our God. And we are his people. May God bless you as our prayer.